we praise you for all that you are doing. You are on the move. And we thank you for blessing this church and providing for all of our needs out of your abundance. And we thank you for everyone who is sown into this offering today. And we ask that you would give back to them good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over. And we just thank you, Lord. We offer this to you. May it serve you well. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Well, we have a few announcements. Um, youth night, 5.30 to 8 here at the church. Men's ministry here tomorrow night at uh, 7 p.m. And Thursday, the Christmas play practice. Some of the costumes we ordered came in, so some of you will be getting fittings this week to make sure how, they, how they're going to work, so that's good. And um, the goodie sign-up is filling out nicely, but we still need some, there are some openings, so... Uh, if you could help set up and clean up and bring a goodie on a Sunday, then sign this up. I'm going to start it. They got their hands full. Here, for now, we're going to start it with you and circulate it around. All right. Kids, are you ready to go downstairs? Don't run, don't run. Walk, please. I love to see that they're excited to go. so I can see too. Can you all see it? At some point, I'm going to try to draw something. Remember, it's not how it looks, it's the idea of it. Hallelujah. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you've already done, and I'm excited to hear praise reports at the end of the service and, and for another time to worship and glorify your name. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth with power and anointing, that it would create understanding, a hunger and thirst for more of you, and that you would just continue to stretch us and to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many years ago, um, I learned to sew. I started in fourth grade with a very simple little thing and began to progress. And by the time I started official home ec, in seventh grade, I was a pretty good seamstress. And they were starting with basic things that I thought were totally beneath me because I had accomplished those a couple years before. And so I got rather ambitious at times. And each project, I picked a little harder thing uh, so that I was learning different techniques and different things. And my mother was teaching me to sew. And so it came time for the Christmas dance. And my mother, I had never had real new clothes on a real frequent basis as a child. Um, and so I thought it was pretty exciting that they would have a dance once a month. And because my mother wanted me to learn to sew, she would buy fabric. And we would work on a dress for the whole month for that, um, for that dance. But for the Christmas dance, I wanted something special. And so, now you have to remember the time I grew up, 
grew up in because this wouldn't be fashionable today. But it had a very fitted bodice. It had long sleeves with quite a bit of puff here. It had cuffs. Uh, it had French cuffs and, uh, you know, buttons. It buttoned down the front, and then it had a full gathered skirt attached to it. I covered the buttons. I even did a fabric-covered belt. And as you can see, that was quite the project. It was such a project that I threw it in the corner and had temper tantrums more than once. And my mother and I had screaming matches at each other for a little while over this stupid red Christmas dress. And so it's now down to the day of the dance. And the dress is done, except for the hem. And I'd already sewn long enough to know that a very full skirt and a hem can be a nightmare. Because if you're not really, really careful, the hem can end up looking wavy. That was not the trend like it might be today. <laughs> and so I was down. I had been sewing all morning, and I was down to I could either take a shower and get ready and do my hair and my makeup, or I could hem my dress. But there wasn't time to do both. And suddenly my grandmother appeared, and uh, she dropped by for a visit, and she saw the problem. And she hustled me off to the bathroom and said, you go take care of you, and I'll hem your dress. Number one, I wasn't even sure that in the hour and a half I had left that I could even get it hemmed because it was such a massive skirt. And it takes, I mean, you have to pin, and you have to measure, and you have to do everything. And so I wasn't sure that my grandmother could do it either. And so I, in my cocky seventh grade self, decided to try to give her some sewing tips. And um, she just looked at me, and bless her for all the things she did not say to me that day. Um, because she just began to take the skirt, and uh, she said, did you cut it straight? And I said, yeah. But here is Grandma. She is just turning under the edge and turning it up and pinning, turning under the edge and turning it up and pinning. And she is moving along. And as I'm watching, she's got like half the skirt pinned, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. She's not measuring a thing. She's just eyeballing it and rolling it up. This is going to be terrible. So I start to say something. My mother tries to cut me off. Finally, my mother pushes me down the hallway and into the bathroom and says, it'll be fine. When I got out and I was ready, the dress was perfect. Because what my grandmother didn't say is, you cocky upstart. <laughs> You've been sewing for, what, maybe three years? I've been sewing for my lifetime. Who do you think taught your mother to sew who taught you to sew? Who can sew circles around each of you? Who sews in their spare time on top of working 40 to 60 hours plus a week to make extra money sewing for other people? She didn't say any of those things to me. She did to this. And it was perfect, and it fit perfect, and I felt like I was the belle of the ball in my red Christmas dress. But the reason I shared that story is somehow that's how the Jewish church that became the Christian church might have felt about some of these Gentile upstarts who were coming in and beginning to not understand and have the history that they had. And they had to gently take them in tow and teach them as they were uh, coming along. Because although they knew that Jesus had saved them, 
they knew nothing else. And so as we're beginning to talk about some of these things, we're going to uh, talk about some of the purposes. And I hope over the next coming weeks um, that you'll have a better understanding of what the early church really looked like, uh, what we really lost in some of the things that happened. Uh, you'll be ha we'll be having some history lessons, which I think are really interesting and I think are foundational to letting us see where Christianity has gone and why. Um, the purpose of studying our Jewish roots is not to make you Jewish. It's to help you understand our Jewish foundation so that we can experience the fullness of our Christianity the way I believe that God intended it. And I think as, I, as the message is brought out this morning, you'll see that I think you'll believe that that's the way God intended it too. Dr. Robert Heidler, I'm reading a couple of his books in uh, the book, The Messianic Church Arising. He reminds us that it was common thing for the first century Christians to observe Sabbaths and feasts, to take part in Jewish rituals and worship in the temple and synagogues. When they became a Christian, when they became a follower of Christ, which is what Christian means, it doesn't mean they stopped being Jewish. They just added it. In fact, Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. They had been expecting him. They had been looking forward to him coming. So when he came, it was really a fulfillment of all the things they'd been taught. So they didn't have to throw out one thing to embrace another. They just added it. You see that? He also said that biblical Judaism was not only the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also of Jesus and the apostles. The Apostle Paul wrote that biblical Judaism was the root from which the true church drew its strength in Romans 11. He also quoted this British journalist, William Ewer, who many years ago wrote a famous little two-line rhyme. It said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Ever wonder why he chose the Jews? We're going to talk about that this morning. Well, someone saw that and they answered it, his little couplet this way. But odder still are those who choose the Jewish God but hate the Jew. See, over the years, it wasn't God's plan or his intention, but there's become separation between Jews and Christianity, between our Jewish roots and Christianity. God meant it for it to be an addition. But as we'll talk about maybe next week or the week after, some things that Constantine put in place that really began to cause that separation. So why did God choose the Jews? Actually, they weren't even really known as Jews when, they, when it initially all started. Y'all remember Adam and Eve and how God created them and they lived in the garden and everything was wonderful and then they sinned and they fell from his grace and they had to leave Eden, remember? Well, we don't know how long, the Bible's not clear how many years passed, but population grew, the earth was, uh, was very well populated, but it was not living for God. The people were, had become an abomination to God, and he had it. And he decided he wanted to destroy the whole earth because it was a stench. And in all the earth he saw only one man that he felt there was a remnant of, of godliness in, and that was Noah. And so he told Noah to build the ark, and he uh, told, gave him specific instructions on building it, and what to supply it with, and that Noah, his three sons, and their four wives were to be the only people that were uh, to inhabit that 
In fact, it was in this current Jewish month. Now, I know I probably am not saying these names right, but it's Cheshvan or Heshvan. In the Jewish calendar that I bought, it says Heshvan, but in the books I'm studying, it says Cheshvan. That's not uncommon as I've been studying this stuff for there to be different spellings of the same thing. Um, so Cheshvan started on the Jewish month of Cheshvan, which is the second month, okay? Tishri is the first month of the Jewish calendar. Um, and that's when all the feasts were that Renee was teaching on while I was gone. Um, but this is the current month of Cheshvan or Heshvan. It started on Wednesday of this last week. And that's when God began to flood the earth. The Bible says that he opened up all the wellsprings of, of the earth and that it began to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but we know from Scripture that the water covered the tallest mountain by a lot. It took a long time for all that water to recede. It took a year and 10 days to be exact. Because if you go through Scripture, you'll see there was progress being made, but the earth was not completely dry until one year and 10 days later. And the reason we know that is because it was still in the month of Cheshvan the next year. So now the earth's completely dry. God gives Noah permission and his family to come out of the ark. And the first thing Noah does is he makes a sacrifice and an offering to God. Well, God just destroyed the earth because nobody was honoring him, right? But what's their first act on solid ground? To honor God. And so he's well pleased. And so he says, he makes a covenant with them. He says, I promise that I will never destroy the whole earth again in this way with, with a flood. And as a sign of my covenant, he put a rainbow in the sky. And he said, whenever I look at that rainbow, it's going to remind me of my covenant. You ever need to be reminded of things? Put things in certain places so that they stay on your mind, in your mind? Well, God was reminding himself. Every time I see a rainbow, I just grin. Because it reminds me of God's covenant, but it's also reminding God of his covenant with man. Now, a couple little bit of other bits of information which I got from this other book um, on the month of Cheshvan. It's the only month which has no holidays. But here's something that's key. In the Messianic Church Arising, um, Jews believe this month is reserved for the time of Messiah, who will inaugurate the third temple in Cheshvan. So they believe that in the month of Cheshvan, Jesus will inaugurate the third temple, the final temple, the holy temple of Jerusalem, the new city. It is this month that symbolizes Messiah, and it's the key month to stand in your authority over the enemy. It's also a month reserved for the anointing in which God, uh, will, which God pulls you aside to draw a new anointing out of you. When God does something new in you, it can go one or two ways. It can be really exciting and easy and exuberant, right? Or it can be hard in a lot of ways, right? So it's probably going to either be a really easy month or a hard month. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not submitted if it's going hard. It just means maybe he's trying to birth something in you that's really different. So be asking him. It's also the month for revelation to be abounding in you, for you to know things that you should know. So be asking him for those things. So, God has destroyed the earth. Noah and his sons begin to repopulate it. 
uh, humanity walks along. It's not real clear as to the year that Noah, uh, you know, the flood happened. Um, so, but it's several hundred years because the Bible goes through all the generations. And it talks about who begat who. And uh, so it's going along. And there's not very much said other than there's a story about between all the begats, there's a story of the Tower of Babel. And God wanted to disperse that because men were coming together, but obviously not for a godly purpose. So he confused their languages and he dispersed them. Um, and so you just it kind of keeps going through the lineage, and then it starts to talk about Abram's father Terah, and how they moved. But and then Terah died, and then it says that God spoke to Abraham, to Abram. He hadn't renamed him Abraham at that point. And in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. God said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Just Jews will be blessed through you? Who did he say? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We don't even see the word Jew even in scripture at this point. But God saw something special in Abram. He's, most of the earth, I think, was not following after God, but there were few. And he saw the right heart, and because of that, he made a special offer to Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham, and he made him a tremendous promise, which he is still keeping. Now, last week, we kind of talked about what he did. But God trained Abraham's descendants for 2,000 years shaping them into his children, a nation that knew him intimately. Remember, these are some of the things we talked about last week that he did. He let them know that there is only one God, and he's a jealous God. He taught them of how he created man and of man's history. He told them of the coming Messiah and of the things that Messiah would do. He taught them about holiness and holy days and holy places, all designed to help them maintain a vibrant relationship with he taught them about righteousness and repentance. He showed them the dangers and separations of sin and how they could restore relationship with him. He introduced them to covenant and a biblical cycle of life. He'd made a covenant with Noah, right? And then he made another, even better covenant with Abraham. He gave them practical wisdom and instruction to help them live better and healthier lives and to be prosperous. And in doing these things, he established in them a Hebrew mindset. He established his mindset, right? God's the God of the Hebrews. He's the original Hebrew. Then when Messiah came, they knew all about who he was and his purpose. They already knew all these things because it had been ingrained in them through relationship, through teaching, through reinforcement, through generations. 2,000 years. The Gentiles had none of that. And we're going to see some of the problems of not having that basis in weeks to come. Okay? God had prepared this nation, trained this nation to be specifically prepared to communicate his path. Specifically prepared to carry out those blessings of Abraham for everyone. Right? 
Exodus 19, 5 through 6, after they came out of Egypt, this is what God said. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now true, there was one tribe that was the king of priests, but he's not talking about the Levites will be the priests for me, is he? He's saying you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's the priest's job? To minister to God, to minister on behalf of the people, to minister to the people, to share revelations from God to the people, right? To be that intermediary, to help them understand God. Priests also sometimes got involved in, in uh, uh, decision making. I mean, Moses had to do that, but you know, I'm sure that they had to handle some of that on some levels. Isaiah 60, verse 3 says, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This was a prediction. Nations, Gentiles, will come to your light. They're going to come to understand your God. They're going to be drawn to what you know, God is saying. Isaiah 61, 6, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. They were supposed to be ministers of God. If they're ministers of God, he didn't say to only your Jewish brothers, did he? No. They were to be ministers of God to the earth. Dr. Robert Heidler in his book, Messianic Church Arising, said, Many have assumed when Paul announced, I'm going to the Gentiles, that it was a rejection of his Judaism. Far from it. It was the fulfillment of his Judaism. He was saying, I'm pressing on to fulfill the call of our people to be a light to the Gentiles. Remember, God opened it up, and there was some discussion at first in the early church. Could this message really be for them? But then they realized this was God's plan. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to that because we're going to be there a little bit. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Who calls themselves the circumcision? The Jews. Okay? And the Jews are looking at these pagans, these Gentiles, and they look down their noses sometimes and they call them the uncircumcised, right? Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Paul's reminding them, you weren't always in, okay? Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They weren't part of the promise. They weren't part of the edge that was going to receive. They weren't foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That was the Gentile's position. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What made the difference? The blood of Christ. Jesus made the difference. Jesus made the connection. Jesus was the open door for them to become 
part of the promises. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. Which two? Jews and Gentiles. Okay? Jesus is that bridge and has, been, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing, the dividing wall of hostility. He, des- he destroyed that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile because he meant for the two to be one by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Now, what does that sound like? To me, that sounds like a merging. Not a taking away and throwing some part away or starting over. We take two new things and you're both rotten and you're both wrong and we're going to start new. It's a merging. The two to become one. And in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put death to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He's preaching peace to the Gentiles, he's preaching peace to the Jews. He's saying to the Jews, I'm your Messiah. I'm the one you've heard about for 2,000 years. I've come as a fulfillment. And to the Gentiles, he's saying, I'm your Messiah. Maybe you don't know what that means. Let me tell you what that means. It means I'm going to buy you back. Your sin has earned you death, but I have come to set you free. And it's through my blood that you get grafted in. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The Gentiles get to be ranked right in there with with the Jewish uh, natural chosen people. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Who were all the leaders of the church and Jesus? They were Jews. They thought like Jews. They were raised as Jews. They celebrated and honored God as Jews. And so the Christian church is built on that Jewish foundation. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. See, this was God's secret plan all along, to develop close relationship with one nation that favored him so that he could ultimately save all nations. His plan wasn't an abolishing or changing of Jews, but an addition of Gentiles, and all to accept his son, Jesus, as Messiah. In Old Testament times, in order to uh, worship the one true God, you had to become a Jew. You had to uh, drop all your pagan customs, which the Jewish, the Christian church required, they drop a lot of pagan customs too, because they were ungodly. But you had to be circumcised, you had to practice, you had to do everything any other Jew did to be, to be accepted. But if I can give you a homework assignment, it's just one chapter, this week, Read Acts 15. I thought about doing it, but for the sake of time, you'll get more out of it if you go through it yourself. 
Acts 15 settles that question because there were some helpful people who took it upon themselves to begin to tell Gentiles, you can't be, you're not a Jew, you haven't done all the hard stuff we've done, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do this, you've got to give up that. And it began to cause quite a commotion. And so some of the Jewish leaders, they were all Jewish, weren't sure that this was of God. And they began, they came to Jerusalem for the point of having a council on this very matter. And you'll see the discussion that happens in Acts 15. And what their decision was finally is, no, we are not going to require our Gentile brothers to be, to be circumcised. We are going to require that they don't eat the, the meat of idols. We're going to require that they don't uh, mess with blood. We're going to require that they abstain from sexual immorality and some of the pagan practices that had been accepted in their pagan churches. But we're not going to require this. And so um, it settled it. See, the Gentiles weren't expected to become Jewish. But they also weren't expected to throw out everything that was Jewish. Do you understand? Jewish traditions and celebrations were not thrown out of the early church. Those feasts that we've been talking about, those were celebrated and others that we've yet to talk about. They celebrated them. See, it was all new to the, to the Gentiles, right? All of this is new to them. But to the Jews who had received Jesus as Savior, it was a fulfillment of all that had been coming, of all that God had spoken. So now they celebrated the same feast that they'd been celebrating, but with a whole different mindset, right? Imagine, now Christmas, I don't believe, is the time that Jesus was born, but we're not changing people celebrating Christmas, right? But imagine... You don't know Jesus, you've never known Jesus, but you've celebrated Christmas all your life, right? And then you receive Jesus. Does Christmas take on a whole different feeling for you? Can you imagine celebrating all these traditions and understanding the history behind them, but now realizing the fulfillment of Jesus in them? That puts a whole different perspective on it. It's interesting to me, let's look at Romans 11. Uh, we're going to ultimately read 11 through 24, so if you want to turn there, we'll be there a while. But first, we're just going to read verse 11. Yeah. And this is what Paul was saying. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? He's talking about the Jews, okay, who didn't accept Jesus as, as Messiah. Um, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Let's look at that. It's interesting to me to see the symbiotic relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Because the Jews were God's chosen people. They were chosen to be a nation of priests, right? We already saw that through scripture. They were chosen to reach the world for God. And the Gentiles were supposed to make the Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, envious, so that what? They would accept Jesus as Messiah. You see how they were supposed to help each other. The Jews were supposed to bring that knowledge and information, but not all of them received. Some did, many did, but some didn't. And so Paul was talking about, because he'd been asked, what about the Jews that haven't, you know, they're, they're God's chosen people, right? What happens to them? 
So he's saying the purpose of, of the Gentiles now is to make them jealous so that they feel like they're missing out. But if, let's read in verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? What is their fullness when they're added back in? How much better the church is going to be when the Jewish nation as a whole gets it and accepts Jesus as Messiah and it's beginning to happen. Okay? Because I'll get to that in a minute if I don't come back in a moment. Um, it goes on in verse 13. I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. Paul's saying, I know I have an important job in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Paul's saying, my ministry is to the Gentiles, but it is my hope, my side ministry, to make sure that as many of my brother Jews as possible come to know Jesus as Messiah. For if their rejection in this uh, verse 15 if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's saying it's going to bring life when they come. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, that's biblical Judaism, okay? So are the branches. So. All right, there's the root. And that is biblical Judaism. Okay? That's what all the Old Testament is. That's what Abraham and all the Old Testament prophets and the apostles and Jesus all came from. Okay? All right, and so then, let's see, okay. All right, so all the branches are the natural branches, okay? They are the natural branches, okay? They're of Jewish descent, right? But let's go on and read. Um, if some of the branches have been broken off, that's rabbinic Judaism, those who do not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in. So those who were natural branches, they were of Jewish descent, but they refused to accept. I like this illustration in this book, so that's why I'm trying to replicate it for you. Um, if they didn't receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, then they were cut off. 
okay? They're tossed aside. They were cut off. They didn't believe. And in their place, and God uses the illustration here in Scripture of the olive tree. Now, there were wild olive trees, and there were um, olive trees that people maintained, and so they were cultivated. This is the word I'm looking for. Okay? And so, obviously, they were more productive, and they were more controlled. And so now... This is the Gentile branch, okay? And now all of those become the new covenant messianic uh, going to say church, but um, Jews, or New Covenant Messianic Church, let's just say that. Okay, the New Covenant Messianic Church means it's of Jewish root, but they believe in the Messiah, okay? And so the Gentiles, the pagans, were grafted in to this Jewish biblical Judaism root. The root didn't go away. Right? So now they're all part of the New Covenant Messianic Church. There's some that understand the history a lot better than others. Okay? Because they've been raised as Jews. They're natural branches. These are grafted in. From the wild olive shoot. That's what most of us are. Did you know you're a wild olive branch? You wild olive branches, you. And you've been grafted in. So that, but you've been grafted into this Jewish root. Does that make sense? Okay. I thought maybe if I could draw it out, that maybe sometimes seeing something helps you get it better. All right. Um, if some of the branches, we'll go back to verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, this is rabbinic Judaism. Oh, it's A-R. That's, they're Jews, but they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe the Messiah has not come yet. Okay? There are a lot. This is what I was going to get back to. Huh? of a rabbinic Judaism? All the Jews that are traditional Jews today, okay, that do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they only have the Torah, the Old Testament, those are rabbinic Jews, okay? Now, there's a huge new movement of new covenant messianic churches. They're Jewish roots, and I want to try to go to one, they're, they're full of Jews, and I'm sure they're full of Gentiles too. <laughs> but they celebrate along Jewish traditions. They're very big at celebrating all the feasts. They have the knowledge that the natural branches would have had. But, and probably most, or all, probably most, of their leadership 
are Jews who have chosen, who have, who have received Jesus as Lord. Okay? So they are messianic. Now this little side note that I did some study on, I thought was really interesting. Um, I'm not sure I understand it fully, but after the 67 war, in, when Israel became a state, a recognized state, they began to put some laws in effect. Um, how many know that if you're Indian, you in this country, and you can prove at least, I think an eighth or a 32nd Indian, you can have some rights, and you can have some payments, and you can have some things for you, okay? If you can prove that you have that much Indian blood. Well, I think it's something similar along those lines, that if you had a father or grandfather, um, at least a father or grandfather, that was of Jewish, natural Jewish descent, you could claim Jewish heritage. So after that was kind of put in place after they became their own nation. But the rabbinic Judaism, the rabbinic Jews, did not want the messianic Jews to be part of that. If you, even if they could prove their heritage, they said, you aren't a rabbinic Jew. So therefore, you're not a Jew. And you don't get any rights or privileges as a Jew. But they took it to court, and they won. And they decided, if you can prove your national, natural Jewish lineage, whether you believe that Jesus was Messiah or not, you could be in that included as a Jew. You could be counted as a Jew. It was a pretty important milestone, right? And see, that age-old conflict has gone on since the beginning. All right? Does that answer your question, Rabbi? Okay. Um, so rabbinic Judaism and those who do not accept Jesus says if the, some of the branches have been cut off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in, okay, among others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, okay, God was not taking something out. He was adding something in, okay, this is Paul's advice to them in verse um, 18. He says, do not boast over those branches. He's like, who are you, cocky upstart, going to come in here and start boasting over these natural branches? You upstart you. Don't do that, he says. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. He's like, you're getting backwards. He's telling them not to get all uppity with their natural branch brothers. You will say to them, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. They weren't broken off because God said the tree's too full, let's throw some of my chosen people down. He would have just made more room in the tree. Get it? They were broken off because they refused to believe. Okay? So these were going to be grafted in no matter what. So they had no position to be bragging or to be uh, thinking they're all that, right? For, and here's, he goes on to warn them. Um, he says, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare his natural branches, 
he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. He's saying, don't get all cocky, because if you don't stay grafted in, you're going down too. Right? And if they do not persist in unbelief, and if who does not persist in unbelief? The rabbinic Judaism. They will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Right? And that's what Paul is hoping. Yes. And it kind of is. I hope that's okay. Dick and Esau? Uh, they made a peace, but those nations became the root of Judaism and uh, the Muslim nations. No. Because here's the good news. You're right, in a sense. Because what does Scripture tell us over and over? God wants that none should perish. He doesn't want rabbinic Judaism, his chosen people, his favored children. He doesn't want them not to be there. But he doesn't want the Gentiles not to be there either. He's a loving and a just God. He wants to graft in anyone and everyone who will receive Jesus as Messiah. So let's go on with this scripture passage and see if this answers any other questions. He said, I'm going to read 23 again. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? This is their olive tree. Right? He's saying, I'm coming back, and when they get it, I'm going to graft them back in. I'm going to graft everyone who gets it back in. But what he's talking about in scriptures, and in some of the scriptures I've shared about, is a collective large number, not a few. He'll graft in one by one. But we're really looking forward to a time when we see a large portion of rabbinic Judaism grafted back in, and we're beginning to see that. But here's the thing you've been raised as a Jew all your life and you suddenly find Christ, you're still a Jew. You probably like 
your traditions and the things you're used to? How many of you are of a certain ethnic descent and you like your customs and your traditions and your foods? And if somebody came up to you and said, not just throw all that away because that's not any good, you'd be kind of going, huh? That's who I am. I like that. Not all of that is bad. See? So what would you go to? Would you come to a church like this? Maybe. Where would you maybe feel more comfortable? In a new covenant messianic church that's going to be very Jewish, that's going to get everything you know and then some. Right? And they're not going to mispronounce names like I would. Right? So you come and you think, wow, I have come home. Right? So, those would be the Jews restored. So all of the Old Testament is the root. Okay? That was God's preparatory time. The living branches, the natural branches, is the new covenant messianic Judaism. Okay? They're still Jews. I'm sure there's some that aren't. Okay? Just like, did you know, we're not a Catholic church. We have a lot of Catholic people in here. Right? So, this is a new covenant messianic Judaism church, but I'm sure it has some members that are not Jews. But I'm sure it has a lot that are. Nancy? Yes, they would study the whole Bible. And I hope to learn more. You've got to realize, I'm trying to teach you as I'm learning myself. It's really hard because I'm trying to stay ahead of you and I'm just learning myself some of this stuff. But I'm convinced that this is how God intended for it to be. You see what I'm saying? He didn't start off and say, let's build a whole new tree. Everything I taught you for the last 2,000 years was just a waste of my time. No, he's saying, now you got the right foundation. I'm just going to add Jesus, and the picture's complete. Right? So he was adding something in, not taking stuff away. And the early church got that. And they operated in tremendous power because they had the fullness that we haven't always had. But we're going to get there. Okay? Hallelujah. Uh, so the living branches, the natural branches, are, are the new covenant messianic Judaism. And all of the apostles were messianic Jews. Okay? Because they'd all been Jews first. Then they received Jesus. So that's what a messianic Jew is. Someone who's received Messiah. Who's received Jesus. They weren't Baptists or Catholics or even Pentecostals. They were Jews who accepted Jesus. Many of Israel's leaders, however, rejected Jesus because they were threatened by him. His popularity scared them. He was going to upset their nice uh, uh, productive apple cart. Remember, we've talked about some of this before. Those in leadership positions in the Sanhedrin were often very wealthy. They kind of had a little mafia kind of thing going on, and they sort of played favors with the Roman government, and the Roman government played favors back. And here comes Jesus, and he is upsetting this. They don't want to believe him. They don't want to follow him because that's going to kind of end their dynasty. And he, they're not going to be the big shots. But the common people, they saw this and turned to Jesus by the thousands. And that scared them because they didn't want that. That's why they wanted Jesus killed. 
They didn't, because it wasn't that a hundred people started following Jesus. It was thousands of people were turning to Jesus. They were losing control, and they wanted him stopped at any cost. Acts 21, 20 through 24. Uh, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Some other apostles are telling Paul about the thousands of Jews who have believed. So we know it wasn't a minor little thing that, mo that so many didn't get it. A lot got it. A few were cut off. Get it? It's not like the whole tree got delimbed and God started over. Um, they, have, they have been informed, they're kind of warning Paul, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or living, live according to our custom. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Um, so I'll get to that other part of it. But first, I want you to see, thousands of Jews had believed. In the Greek, the word there is actually murius, and it means 10,000, which means if it was translated according to the Greek correctly, it would be tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of Jews have come to know Jesus. That sort of makes sense. And I'm going to share some statistics with you another day because I didn't have time to put it all in today. And you'll see how fast the early church grew. And its first converts were Jews because they got it. They got it quicker and easier because they were natural branches that understood the history. They were already watching for Messiah. Okay? So not all Jews were cut off. Many remained as natural branches and became Messianic Jews. Uh, you see from that passage that there was a vicious rumor circulating that Paul was asking Jews to not follow Jewish customs, to no longer, in a sense, be Jewish. And so they were warning him, they're going to find out that you're here, and all hell is going to break loose. Because this was no small matter. And so they warned him, what we think you should do is there's these four guys, and they're going to go through this purification uh, ceremony to go into temple. And there's some costs involved, Paul, as you well know. So I think you should pay for some of those other people to go through it, and you should go through it yourself. Did Paul need to do that? No. Did he do it anyway? Yes. Because he wanted to show them this wasn't true. He wasn't asking them not to be Jewish. He wasn't asking them not to circumcise their children. He wasn't asking them to stop doing any of their Jewish customs. <coughs> In fact, he was still doing all those things. And so to prove it, to keep from there being a riot, um, he, he did what the elders asked him to do so that he could bring peace. And when they saw Paul saying, wow, I, that's, a, that's not true. In fact, I'm so Jewish. I'm going to continue to act Jewish. I'm going to show you how Jewish I am. And see, Paul was proud that he was Jewish. He wasn't just casting that coat off. He was adding on another. Um, Dr. Heidler said this, every good thing you receive from God is a result of being grafted in to a Jewish root. God wants you to draw from that root all the life he implanted there for 2,000 years. He wants you to have that history, to have that knowledge. 
because it will bring a richness to your faith. Just like these natural branches, once they got that Jesus was Messiah, can you imagine the fullness? It's like their faith coming full circle. Well, guess what? When we understand our Hebraic, our biblical um, Jewish Judaism root, we're going to have a better fullness too. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions? All right. Good. Then there's none I can't fix. So. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, just be patient as we learn some of these things. I'm trying to make it in bite-sized pieces. Some of it's a little big. But, as we begin to understand, it's pretty exciting because you, have you read that passage in Romans before? Have you ever seen it this way? So, it kind of brings it to life in a new way when you understand a little more fully of what God is talking about and, and how he intended. And, uh, boy, that's a sad truth. But, um, <laughs> sad looking. But it's, it's got good roots. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, let's close in prayer and we'll invite the music team back. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you put a hedge of protection around about this word, that you just continue to cause it to flourish and grow, and that uh, you add to it, Lord, that you help us to, to bring in what we need to, to help our faith bloom and blossom and grow and come full circle, so that we walk in the fullness of all you intended for us to have. Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. How many of you think that you're different today than you were two or three years ago, that you've changed, you've grown, you can see that? Okay? Is it natural to assume that if you continue to grow in God that you're going to be different yet in two or three more years? And as we still are adding new things, then it has new ways to stretch you, to increase your capacity, and for us to just grow more fully into all that God has for all right, music team. Anybody that I prayed for earlier, any noticeable differences?